Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to hear from David Harris. He's a Georgia native who collaborated with the R&B artist Her, who has five Grammy nominations for her self-titled album, including Best New Artist and Album of the Year. So be sure to join us here on GBB, or you can catch the On Second Thought podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Author Snowden Wright is no stranger to a good Southern epic. His new book, American Pop, chronicles the fizzy and flat years of a cola empire and the Forster family who built that dynasty. The novel pours out American cultural and economic history and wrestles with the way that nostalgia colors and sometimes covers reality. American Pop is coming out tomorrow, and Snowden Wright joins me in the studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. We meet the Forster family at a New Year's Eve gala. This is at the dawn of 1940, when one of the siblings looks out over the balcony, the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, and all the revelers, and is moved, thinking they all look so happy. Are they? Not at all. Uh, <laughs> Not even a, a little. It's meant to be an ironic uh, assessment, in that he just misreads the entire situation. All the uh, the main childrens of the family are dealing with their own dilemmas, dramas, and plights in their own way. Uh, one of the characters is suicidal. Another just received divorce papers from her husband. A third just had a very uh, degrading sexual experience. And so they're all de- dealing with the burden of their name and the burden of their family prominence as that is coupled with these personal traumas they're going through. Yeah, uh, the family, uh, as as is written in the book, they're nouveau riche who are no longer riche. <laughs> so they're having some struggles. But tell us about a little bit of background on this whole cola dynasty. Why that particular product? Why did that inspire the novel? The idea for to make in a novel about cola struck me because cola seems to be a quintessential American product. It is to America what tea is to England, wine to France, or beer to Germany. And so when I was trying to think of a vehicle by which to explore the past hundred years of American cultural history, I love the idea of soda as being both a Southern drink and an American drink. It's very popular down here. It was started here in Atlanta. And yet it is a quintessential American drink. There was this quote by Andy Warhol about Coca-Cola and how it's so democratic and that you know that the president and Liz Taylor both drink it. Mm. And how did you form this interconnected dynasty of characters? Were any particular characters come to you first? There were... The idea of the novel came to me first, the idea of a soda dynasty. And then I had the very daunting task of creating at least 12 characters, all these characters within this family. And that made me want to curl up into a corner because (laughs) I had no idea how to do that. And then I remembered my multiplication tables. In second grade, when we were taught our multiplication tables, zero to 12, I came up with a strange mnemonic device whereby every number between zero and 12, I gave a personality and a place within a larger family. 
And when they would multiply, the product looked like this anecdote to my little 12-year-old mind. And every time they'll multiply, that would play out in my head. And it even kept playing out in my head up until a few years ago, whenever I calculated a tip at a restaurant. Mm. And so I realized that I had my characters right there, and I'd had them there since second grade. And all I had to do was transpose the numbers into the novel. Huh, so there are multiple generations here. There's Tewksbury, Forster, uh, plucky son of a, of a druggist, I guess, of a pharmacist mm-hmm. who develops this formula. His uh, son who marries and they have, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six kids or four kids um, and their progeny after that. So many generations and many callbacks from one to the next. It's like it's like they're, the, the memory of the older dynasty makers haunts the rest of the of the children through the years. I absolutely correct. And I really wanted to make that emblematic and representational of the South. What is one of the most defining characteristics of Southern fiction and just Southern culture? It is the constant reckoning with our past and how the past is constantly bubbling up into our present. And we're having to deal with the Civil War and slavery and so much more and deal with it in whatever way we can. And I wanted to embody that idea with the family where the past keeps bubbling up into the present with them. Mm-hmm. Bubbling up. See what you did there. There you go. <laughs> uh, but you, there's also in the, their tents, you know, right now, the Forsters, like most Southern families, you write, typically had one of two intentions when conversing among themselves, to make each other laugh or to make each other bleed. <laughs> where did this come from? I love getting a bit aphoristic about the South and the Southern culture, and I love getting anthropological. And that line comes from my own family. I just know how we interact, and we're a very loving family, but when people encounter us and hear how we talk, they can misconstrue our good-natured jibes as a the opposite of love, and they don't realize how, how it was meant to be endearing, and that's what bonds us together. And that really was something I wanted to explore in the novel, to make this family be a family that is very loving, but it also is very cutting with each other, and they can hurt each other without uh, giving it a second thought. Do you but, think there's more... There's more honesty and frankness in that in some kind of way? I mean, it's it's the opposite of the New England waspy family that never really say anything to each other, at least our image of that. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. The family, they are their own their own thing. They They live by their own rules, and they're allowed to do that because of their social prominence, because of their wealth, because of their political aspirations and how they are put on this national national stage and given the spotlight of celebrity. They were the celebrities of their day. They were the Kennedys or Rockefellers or Hearst. Mm. Well, let's talk about your family because you moved from New York City back to the family farm in Mississippi to write the novel. What, what inspired that change of scenery? I had been living in New York for about a decade and I realized it was going to take forever to finish this novel. And then, sadly, my grandfather passed away 
leaving me a small inheritance. And so I decided to honor his memory and his generosity by using that inheritance to quit my day job, move to Mississippi, and work on American Pop full time. And when I was there, I primarily lived in Oxford, Mississippi, but I also spent a lot of time on my family's farm in Yazoo County. And on that farm, we had this old camp house. It's, uh, it's an old shotgun cottage, and this was not a nice place. And the story goes that when my father first purchased it, he had it shipped on the back of a truck from some other farm and put on his. And he was so proud of it because he was in his mid-20s. This was the first home he had ever purchased. And so because he was so proud, he immediately drove 20 miles down the road to pick up his mama and show her this new purchase he'd made as a young man. So he gets her in the car and says, Mama, I want to show this something to you. The thing to keep in mind about his mother, my grandmother, is that she was this old Mississippi blue blood. She has since lost all her wealth, as American families are wont to do, but she still had that bearing about her. So my dad pulls up in front of the camp house, opens her door for her, and says, Look at this, Mother. This is my house. I own this. This is, this is mine. And his mother looks at it, takes a long drag of her cigarette, and goes, Charles, and our family, we burn houses nicer than this. <laughs> <laughs> and that story really gave me the first idea of the fluid nature of wealth and class in America. And I think I expanded on that in American Pop and how, to quote Nathaniel Hawthorne, families are always rising and falling in America. Yeah, and the, actually the the wife of Tewksbury Forster, Fiona Forster, is one of those blue bloods who marries down, as they say. Mm-hmm. So there's always this kind of tentativeness about who are we? we we've, we've made all this money, but what? We don't really deserve to be in these ranks? What do you think is at play for these characters? I think the fact that where they're from and that they are nouveau riche is a constant struggle, uh, is a constant dilemma for them, internal and external. And so they're constantly trying to show that they deserve their place in American history and amongst families like the Kennedys and the Rockefellers, both of whom were at one point nouveau riche as well. Mm. Snowden Wright is my guest. We're talking about his book, American Pop, a very well-anticipated Southern novel. And we're talking about the the family, the Forster family, who run a soda dynasty. It's Panola Cola is the name of the cola. And the the Forsters are chronicled as if they're a real American dynasty. Uh, There's a character who has an affair with Josephine Baker, for example. Uh, There are newspaper clippings and interviews, almost like a documentary talking head style. So what did this, this style, what did that entry point help you? How did that help you tell their story? I had the idea from that style from Truman Capote's quote-unquote nonfiction novel, In Cold Blood. I wanted to make American Pop the opposite of that. I wanted to make it fictional nonfiction. And to do so, I used certain techniques of nonfiction, bringing in exegetic source material, interviews and quotes, specific dates and times, and also real figures like Josephine Baker. And the ultimate goal with that was to create a very a stronger sense of verisimilitude, where because you have these real events and these real people combined with these fictional people, subconsciously I wanted the reader to feel that 
this really happened. I wanted to breach that boundary between fiction and nonfiction and make them truly believe in the world of the foresters. Mm. And there, But there's also a fiction and nonfiction that operates for them. There is what they present to the outside world, what everybody saw at the Peabody Hotel in their, you know, gold lame gowns and long cigarette holders. And then there's something else that is going on inside of the family. Uh, so are you playing with that idea of what is real, what is not real? Absolutely. And that kind of goes into the very notion of nostalgia, how it's a story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And so the Foresters have that story that they tell themselves about themselves and the story, the facade that they present to the world. And I really wanted to investigate the advantages and disadvantages of nostalgia. A lot of times is a disadvantage in that it makes us misremember certain aspects of the past and how it really wasn't that great. And then in another way, it can make us not want to look, not want to focus on the present as much. We want, well, on the present as much. We want to live in that utopia, that nostalgic utopia of the past rather than move forward. Is that as American as soda pop? I, w I would say Yes. Uh, you look at Soda Pop and you look at uh, the idea of America. America is very focused on nostalgia, especially at this point in time. The way things used to go. Would you read some of the novel for us? I'd love to. Okay. So this is Snowden Wright. His book is American Pop. The novel is coming out tomorrow. He's going to read a little bit for us. Um, set, set, set up the scene for us, would you? Okay. So this chapter, this is the opening of a chapter later in the novel, and it involves Imogene Forrester, who is a part of the fourth generation of Foresters, and her grandfather, Houghton Forrester, who invented and founded the Panola Cola Company, has just passed away. Years later, a Harper's, Mag a Harper's Magazine review of her famous autobiogra autobiography would describe Imogene Forrester as fearless and indomitable. But on May 8, 1856, she lay in the bathtub on the second floor of her family home, crying into lukewarm water, afraid to get out because she had no idea what to say in the eulogy for her grandfather, Houghton Forrester. The funeral schedule for that afternoon. Following the death of Imogene's father when she was 10, Houghton had raised her as if she were his own daughter rather than his granddaughter, acting the part of a much younger man. He took her for piggyback rides and taught her how to play catch. He helped her with homework and never missed a single recital. In those years, he often said one important thing to her. Can't never could. Whenever Imogene felt helpless, saying she just couldn't reach the jar of preserves on the shelf, or she just couldn't make it to the end of the driveway in time to catch the bus. Or she just couldn't go to the school dance with the other kids. Her father would respond with those three words. Can't never could. Now, soon to graduate at the top of her class from Radcliffe, Imogene knew she had her grandfather to thank for everything she'd managed to accomplish in her life. Which made her fear about giving his eulogy all the worse. She unplugged the bath waiting for, waited for the water to drain, grabbed the pulley above her head, and, lifting herself in one smooth motion, sat down in her wheelchair. 
Now, Imogene has polio and is living life in a wheelchair, but that that message from her grandfather, you must persevere, you must roll on. What does that say both about the American character and do you think the Southern character? I think it says a lot about both. And I think it says a lot about this particular character. She's put into, she faces hardships both because of her infirmity, but also because of her gender. What the time that this is taking place is uh, controversial for her to take on the family company. And yet she is such a strong person that she doesn't let, let that deter her. And so she exceeds even when the odds are against her and she fights for her right to run the company. And I think her attitude and the way she goes about claiming her birthright is uh, a lesson that a lot of uh, America in the South could learn from. Author Snowden Wright, his second novel, American Pop, is on sale tomorrow. He's going to be at the Buckhead Barnes & Noble shop on Saturday reading and talking about his book. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Now I should clarify that Saturday, February 16th, for his Atlanta book launch. There's more information at our website, gpbnews.org. And that's all that we have time for today. On Second Thought is produced by Elena Rivera, Leighton Raul, Raven Taylor, and Amelia Brock. Alex Word is our engineer, Amy Kiley, our senior producer. We'll be back tomorrow with more on Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you.